This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 165, The Sea. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a Citizen of Heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in. The sea represents the edge of the inhabited world. It's deep, cold, mysterious, intimidating, not to be trifled with. This week we'll talk about the sea that separates us from God and what God's doing about it. Clive Cussler's take on the Titanic story, better than James Cameron's in my book. A pair of seats from the Bible and our hymn books, one of which may represent you. And the best scuba diving experience you'll ever find that's made out of cardboard. Let's start with what I've been preaching. There is the wilderness where we are. There is the promised land where we are going. And between the two, there is a river. This is the image that we see so often in our hymn books. I am bound for the promised land. Here we are but straying pilgrims. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye, etc. There is a separation between where we are and where we want to be. And we trust in God that he's going to get us through that. But in the book of Revelation, the separation between God and his people is more significant than that. The image that we see over and over again is not a river, but a sea. You can cross a river. We can build bridges. We can build boats. We can figure out a way. For the people of Israel, crossing the sea was a very different thing. It might as well be on the moon. I think that's part of the picture when we see in Revelation, starting in chapter 4, this picture of God surrounded by a sea. Chapter 4 of Revelation in verse number 6 says that before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And he goes on to describe the creatures. This is where holiness resides. This is where the things of God exist, where the holiness of God is not just seen, but it's protected. You cannot get there. This sea is a barrier, an impassable barrier between the things of God and the things of man. The book of Revelation is about finding a way through that, finding a way over that, helping us as mere mortals come in contact with our creator. In chapter 13 of Revelation, we see that the dragon is standing by the seashore, by the sea, most literally. Some of your versions may have the word sea there. And then we see a beast coming out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. It's a terrifying creature that most people seem to think is representing governmental power, maybe specifically the nation of Rome or the Catholic Church, but essentially power. This beast is going to compel human beings to submit to the dragon, to submit to the devil. This is where strife comes from. It comes from the sea. We see it again in chapter 15, where God adds an element. Chapter 15, verse 2, I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had been victorious over the beast in his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God, and they sang the song of Moses. There is a transition taking place here. But notice it's a transition of fire. As we perceive God, as we see him from a distance, we realize the danger, the hazards, the pain that exists there. And we realize this is part and parcel with our life. We may or may not die as martyrs, but one way or the other, crossing the sea is a perilous thing. We see images of death in chapter 20 and verse number 13. 
And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Now certainly people were buried at sea from time to time, but the way the sea has been portrayed to this point, especially the idea of dying in the sea and being carried through the sea, indicates that perhaps there's more to it than that. God is seeing this process through to the end. As we saw back in chapter 15, there are people who are making it, who are getting across the sea. It's a painful process. It's a difficult process. But God has not forgotten about us. And in fact, the only way we can complete this process, one way or the other, is by dying. Now, maybe this is not the biggest pepper-upper of a segment that I've ever put on the podcast here. But it's important for us to appreciate where we are going and where we are, and especially in the context of this point, the barriers that are between here and there. If there is pain, if there is suffering, that does not mean that God has forgotten about us. This is a testing process. And whether your fire literally takes your life or not is not the main issue. You're going to face persecution. You're going to face the dragon. You're going to face the beast. What should encourage us is what we see in the very next chapter. In chapter 21, we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. This holiness barrier that kept us away from God, there's going to come a time when that does not exist anymore. We have this assurance that we are not going to be separated from God forever. We are privileged to read the Bible and watch these souls cross over one by one, year after year. They go through their trials. They suffer. And maybe they die for the cause. But they're elevated in the eyes of God, and they should be elevated in our eyes as well. They should serve as examples for us, reminding us that that will be us one day too. There will come a time when we are not separated from God at all. We will see him as he is, as we read in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Wouldn't it be wonderful to see at the end of our journey the fulfillment of all of our hopes and dreams, the completion of this trip. We've been trying for our entire lives to be closer to God, to be more like God, to change our character, change our behavior. One of these days, that barrier, that gap between us and God will be removed, and it will stay removed forever. This is what I've been reading. It's been more than 20 years now since Rose pushed Jack off into the cold, cold depths of the North Atlantic when it was perfectly clear that the piece of wood that she was resting on was big enough for two. It was more than 20 years before that, though, that fiction writer Clive Cussler, who I've referenced in the podcast before, had his own version of the story. In the imagination of Clive Cussler, the entire ship was resurrected. For whatever reason, I had put off reading Raise the Titanic until recently. Maybe it was the exclamation point. The early books of Kessler's have the exclamation point at the end of the title. Raise the Titanic. Pacific Vortex. Things of that nature. That kind of annoys me a little bit. But it's a very good read, as Kessler generally is. Going down to the bottom of the ocean and finding something, and retrieving it, and rescuing it, is fascinating. But, if we were to be realistic about it, not a whole lot could really be accomplished by doing that. 
there are a lot of artifacts probably down at the bottom of the ocean that might be interesting, that would draw people's attention, that would fill up a museum, etc. But the Titanic itself is not much. There are still some floorboards and trellises and staircases and all those sort of things. But it's not ever going to sail again. Most of it's simply iron and rusty iron at that. It's much more valuable as a romantic notion, I think, not within our vision than it would be if it were actually something that we could go and look at and say, really? That's it? It seems so small. It's so ugly. It reminded me a little bit of my resurrection and yours if you're a child of God. When we're lying at the bottom of the ocean, when we are dead, there's not much to say for us. And simply putting a dead body on display accomplishes nothing except further embarrassment. That's what makes Jesus Christ so much more powerful than James Cameron or Clive Cussler or any human being as far as that goes. Not only does he bring us back to the surface, he brings us back better than we were when we went down in the first place. Ephesians chapter 2 reads like this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we, too, all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. In your greatest triumph, the best day you ever had, the most noble you ever were, you were still dead in sins. And when Jesus raises you up, he makes you over again, transforms you, turns you into a different human being altogether. No matter what, Clive Cussler or James Cameron or anyone else could do to the Titanic, even in real life. Under the best of circumstances, all it would ever be is a wreck. A resurrected wreck, a cleaned up wreck, a polished up wreck, sure. But it's never going to be what it was before it was wrecked. That's what makes our resurrection so amazing. Jesus lifts us up from sin and makes us better than we ever were before. Our sins were absolutely titanic. Thanks be to God, we have resurrection. Jesus can and will raise us up from the depths and give us a job, give us a hope, give us a promise that our best days lie before us, not behind us. This is what I've been hearing. There is a sea is a hymn that has been in, I believe, every hymnal that I've ever sung out of. 
I haven't sung it all that often. I remember very distinctly the first time I ever sung it, or tried to. It was on a Wednesday night singing. Brother Bert Dodd was leading. I was probably six or seven years old. And I think it was kind of a game almost. I hesitate to use the word game, but one of those stump the song leader kind of things. And someone called out, there is a C, number whatever it was. And Brother Bert kind of chuckled a little bit and shrugged his shoulders. Well, we'll give it a shot. I'm not sure even he knew the song all that well. I'm pretty sure that nobody else knew it very well. And as a result of that, I cringed every time I heard that. And as a, and as a result of that, I decided that I really hated There Is a Sea. It was not a very pleasant, certainly not a very uplifting experience. But once I heard the song sung properly, once I learned to sing it properly, and especially when I understood the lyrics, it took on a whole other meaning. There is a sea which day by day receives the rippling rills and streams that spring from wells of God or fall from cedared hills. But what it thus receives, it gives with glad unsparing hand. A stream more wide with deeper tide flows on to lower land. This is the story of the Sea of Galilee, or the Lake of Galilee, maybe more accurately. It's a freshwater lake filled with the melted snow from Mount Hermon at a very, very high altitude. The water streams into little creeks and rivulets and flows down into the Sea of Galilee, where it's stored there and eventually released on the southern end of the sea, out into the Jordan River. If you know the Sea of Galilee very much from the Bible, or perhaps even from your own personal experiences, you know this is a vibrant, living body of water. Fish, birds, humans, all manner of life takes water, takes vitality from this body of water, because it remains fresh. The fresh water comes in, the fresh water goes out. But in allowing the water to flow, it blesses everything around it. The second stanza indicates a very different sea. There is a sea which day by day receives a fuller tide, but all its store it keeps, nor gives to shore or sea beside. Its Jordan stream now turned to brine like heavy molten lead. Its dreadful name doth e'er proclaim that sea is waste and dead. The Dead Sea, or Salt Sea, does not have an outlet. The water goes in, it stays there, and it dies there, essentially. Nothing grows in the Dead Sea. Because this sea does not share what God gives it, death surrounds it. And the point of the hymn, of course, is for us to choose between these two lifestyles. Which shall it be for you and me who God's good gifts obtain? Shall we accept for self alone? Or take to give again. For he who once was rich indeed laid all his glory down, that by his grace our ransomed race should share his wealth and crown. That's the story of the first half of Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. 
have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus chose to be a giver. You need to decide for yourself whether you're going to be a giver. If we're just going to exist in this life, taking everything that God has to give us and offering nothing in return, what's the point of us being here? Takers are a waste and dead. They're dead to themselves. They're dead to others. They're dead to God. Don't be that kind of person. Be like the Sea of Galilee. Be like Jesus Christ himself, giving life to others, fulfilling God's purpose, finding true satisfaction. Take what God gives you, pass it on to somebody else. That's Jesus' example. That's the Sea of Galilee's example. That should be your example as well. This is what I've been playing. In Oceanos, you are a submarine commander. It is your job to build and upgrade and utilize the submarine that you're given to go out and accomplish great things. And as always, earn victory points so that you can be the best submarine commander your game table has ever seen. The submarine itself is composed of different segments and they can be upgraded. You're starting with a level one submarine and you can upgrade any part of it. You can only upgrade one part at a time, but you can upgrade. Maybe it is your ability to salvage things from the ocean. Maybe it is your fuel, which gives you extra turns, essentially. Maybe it is your air capacity, allowing you to dive deeper. Whatever it happens to be, you can make improvements as you're given opportunity so that when the time comes, you can go out into the ocean and you can accomplish great things. Maybe that means collecting coral or counting fish. Maybe it means finding buried treasure. But the thing is, you only have a certain number of divers. You can't upgrade the number of divers that you have. That's another upgrade. But those divers only go down one time. And there are three rounds in the game. And if you find something that you really want the diver to get, you can send him out in the first round. But you're never going to be able to dive in that section again. And it may be much more advantageous to go later. Now, if he goes in round two, he can collect whatever's available in the first round or the second round. And then you think, well, maybe I ought to wait another round. Maybe I ought to wait till the third round. Because then everything in that entire column of water, my diver's going to get. But if there's nothing at the very bottom, you don't collect anything. And that's a great lesson for us as we live our lives before Jesus. We never know what the future is going to hold, but we have a certain amount of control over it. And we certainly have control over our preparation for the future. So if we can put wheels in motion so that we can be empowered to succeed when the moment comes, we have a much better chance. I was reminded of Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16, where he tells them that this opportunity for helping the needy saints back in Jerusalem was on the way, and they needed to prepare for that. That's why the collection was taken up on the first day of the week, so that 
the congregation would be able to do the business of the Lord when the opportunity arose. By making preparations early and then carrying through with their preparations, the Corinthians had a bit of a problem with that, we find out in 2 Corinthians, but be that as it may, the preparation we make ahead of time go a long way toward making sure that our actual efforts are successful. Then when that moment comes, we seize the opportunity. That's another great lesson for us there. If you're set up, if you're ready to go, you jump into the ocean and you go get what is waiting there for you. Take courage from the apostles. In Acts chapter 3, for instance, when they find a crowd surrounding them, after Peter and John have ministered to this lame man, Verse 12, when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Why do you gaze at us as by our own power or piety? We've made him walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. And he goes on to preach a very scathing sermon, essentially, against them for rejecting the one who came to live and die for them. He does the same thing again in a different crowd, in an even more intimidating crowd. In chapter 4, verse number 8 and following, after they're called on the carpet by the Sanhedrin to explain what they've been doing, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, This man stands here before you in good health. Again, seizing the opportunity to turn the conversation toward Jesus. And one other point, don't wait too long in doing this. If you delay and delay and delay looking for the perfect opportunity, sometimes the perfect opportunity never arises. That sounds like what Felix was doing in Acts chapter 24, verse 25. It sounds kind of like Felix was just waiting for the perfect opportunity to listen to Paul. That's what he said, at least. When I find a convenient time, I'll call for you. We need to strike while the iron's hot. If there is an opportunity for us to reach down into the world, into the ocean, into the sea, and accomplish something real, accomplish something good for the Lord, let's take that opportunity. Good plan today is better than a perfect plan tomorrow. I'm always saying that, and it's true. Do what you can where you find yourself. Set yourself up for success, and ideally set yourself up for big success. But don't be so determined to set up a perfect move that you wind up getting nothing at all. That's why I lose Oceanus. And that's why a lot of Christians fail in their attempts to serve Jesus Christ. If you take your job seriously, if you take the Lord seriously, if you take heaven seriously, you'll motivate yourself to do better than that. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.